Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we're going to talk about the election of the first caliph, an event which has the dubious distinction of being considered by some to have been the first tear in what would later become Islam's most infamous schism, the Sunnah-Shia divide. Episode 3, The Birth of a Caliphate. As with our last episode, there are a number of disclaimers I have to make regarding what you're about to hear. Just like how the life of the Prophet is a battleground for defining, justifying, and reimagining identity for many Muslims, the lives of his contemporaries also inspire great disagreement and debate. As the generation of men and women who backed Muhammad through the unlikeliest of odds, many think of those companions of the Prophet, the Sahaba in Arabic, as being beyond criticism somehow sanctified by the divinity of what took place during their lives. This is similar to what we discussed last time in relation to the Prophet, except that the companions are not divine in themselves, but only through their close association with the Prophet. As we'll come to see, after the caliphates of the Sahaba, the Ummah would have changed politically from an all-encompassing tribal confederation to an Arab empire, which explains in part why Arab historians held it as a distinct period in time simpler and more just when contrasted to their imperial present. Another familiar issue is the previously introduced problem of historicity. We don't have written accounts of anything until the Arabs make the shift from oral to written transmission sometime in the 8th century, over a hundred years after these events have taken place. And to this, we now have to add the new problem of sectarianism. We therefore have multiple often conflicting accounts of events during this period. And it's not like each one comes from a single partisan author. Most of the histories written back then were rarely satisfied with providing a single account for each event, preferring instead to trace different ones back to multiple people, confusing the issue further. Crises of succession are apparently a common birthplace for new sects, and the Sunnah-Shia split is sometimes traced to the election of the first caliph. Now for a disclaimer about my last disclaimer. Listeners might be tempted to confuse the Sunnah-Shia split I just mentioned for the one they know exists today. This is understandable, and it's both right and wrong. I just wanted you to know that I'm going to proceed with the podcast like you know nothing about the Sunnah-Shia split because it's better that way. Today's sectarian landscape has little to do with the world of the past, and keeping it in mind as we go through the history will just muddle things up for us. When I first considered starting this podcast, I thought we'd proceed methodically, examining every caliph, arranging the events of their life chronologically, and finally, commenting on their rule and how it shaped the office they held or measured up to their predecessors, whatever seemed relevant. I understood that the history I was interested in arranging was at some points, especially early on, somewhat contentious, with historians from different sides offering narratives that made the case for their sect while writing about events that took place centuries before their own lives. For the most part, I feel confident that I can provide a non-sectarian telling of this history, 
by which I mean I'll make sure to include a diverse set of sources while rendering one consistent narrative. I do not want to sidestep sectarianism altogether, though. At some key events, the histories passed down by Sunnah and Shia historians vary in fundamental and consequential ways, making it more instructive to relate both versions and then provide listeners with some analysis on where these differences may have come from and speculation on what may have really happened. The election of the first caliph presents such an opportunity. The different versions of how Abu Bakr came to be the successor to the Prophet can tell us a lot about how the two sects perceive their relationships to the past. Everything we know today about the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet, comes from the same sources we discussed in our last episode, basically transcriptions of narrative histories transmitted orally for a few generations. By the time the orally transmitted history was being written down, however, the days of the companions of the Prophet had taken on a different meaning. They now seemed like a divinely inspired golden era, an era which spanned the Prophet's life and the reigns of the first four caliphs, who were all close associates of the Prophet themselves. The first four caliphs were called the rightly guided caliphs, and it's hard to overstress how much higher they are regarded by Muslims today than any of the rest of the caliphs. Since they were all such close contemporaries of the Prophet, it might help to think of these leaders more as disciples than political leaders. At least, that's how Muslims are encouraged to view them. One historian even goes so far as to doctor their birth years in order to make them all pass away at the same age as the Prophet, which he proceeds to cite as proof of their divinely ordained legitimacy as caliphs. So, for the next four caliphs, we're still treading on holy grounds, slightly less holy than the Prophet maybe, but more fraught with sectarian misinformation. I'll try and keep things chronological, but we'll have to jump back and forth between Sunni and Shia versions of events in these early episodes sometimes. With the death of the Prophet, leadership of the community became a pressing issue. While Islam had become the supreme power in the Arabian Peninsula during the Prophet's lifetime, his passing brought turmoil to the Muslims. The only reason there was a crisis of succession was because the Prophet had said almost nothing on the subject of who was to lead the community after him. In the farewell speech at the end of his final pilgrimage a few months before he passed away, the Prophet took his cousin Adi by the hand and said, Whomever of you is loyal to me, be loyal to Adi. Or something like that. He asked them to consider Ali their mawla, which has connotations of regency. Anyone you obey out of loyalty or duty is your mawla. Those who understood this to be a clear endorsement of Ali's successorship to the Prophet became retrospectively known as Ali's party, Shi'at Ali, or the Shia. To them, Ali's entire life seems to have left him uniquely prepared for the role. He was the Prophet's cousin, raised by him since he was a boy of five. He was married to the Prophet's daughter Fatima, the only daughter to have given the Prophet grandchildren, children the Prophet himself had named. He was one of the first people to join Islam and was the most like the Prophet in shunning tribal values and embracing Islamic social virtues of justice and equality instead, making him very popular among the Muslims who lacked social standing in the tribal world, like slaves, freedmen, and others who longed for a society free from tribalism. The list goes on and on, and it's clear that before the Prophet's death, there were many who were convinced of Ali's right to claim leadership of the community after his cousin's passing. These were made up mainly of his clan, the Beni Hashim or Hashemites, 
and their loyalists, who mostly came from those without any standing or prestige in the tribal system. There do seem to have been other interpretations of the Prophet's designation of Ali as the new Mawla. Some viewed it as a simple and unremarkable public expression of goodwill by the Prophet to his closest kin. Others still understood it to mean that Ali was to be considered his son in matters of inheritance, administration of his will, and other clan responsibilities and privileges. Unsympathetic Sunni histories sometimes point to the fact that there had recently been grumbling from some of the Muslims in Yemen where the Prophet had sent Ali to govern, implying that the Prophet's gesture was meant to quell some resistance Ali's inflexible rule had brought his way. So we can't say that the matter was settled as far as the community was concerned. In fact, it's reported to us that the Prophet's uncle Abbas went to Abu Bakr and Umar, two of the Prophet's closest companions, as the Prophet lay dying, to ask them if they knew of any instructions he'd left regarding succession, and they both concurred that he had said nothing. When the Prophet did die, his uncle Abbas said to Ali, Stretch out your hand that I may pledge allegiance to you. For then people would say, The uncle of the Prophet pledged allegiance to the cousin of the Prophet. The rest of the Bani Hashim will pledge, and all the people will follow thereafter. These two anecdotes attest to a general ambiguity about who was to lead once the Prophet passed away, and they are endorsed by both sides of the schism. Next, I'll present you with three versions of the election of Abu Bakr, starting with the one based only on the agreed-upon events. Soon after the Prophet passed away, men from the two tribes that had occupied Medina since before Islam, the Aws and Khazraj, jointly referred to by the Muslims as the Ansar, or champions, for, well, having championed the Prophet when most of the Quraysh had persecuted him, held a meeting to talk about what came next. The way they saw it, the Prophet had led the community, which was originally just them and the few Meccans who undertook the Hijrah to Medina, the Muhajirun. These two terms will be important for our next few episodes, so try and keep them in mind. The Ansar were the people of Medina who championed the Prophet, and the Muhajirun were those Meccans who undertook the pilgrimage to Medina. The Ansar reasoned that since the Prophet was from Mecca, it was only fair that the next leader be one of them, someone from Medina. This is the point at which three prominent Muhajirun walked in, namely Abu Bakr, Omar, and Abu Ubaidah. The three of them insisted that the Arab tribes would accept none other than Quraysh to rule them. There was some further argument after which Umar asked Abu Bakr to hold out his hand and pledged loyalty to him. The majority followed suit, while some withheld their support. The next day, Umar went about securing the pledges of allegiance from the people of Medina and threatened some of those who would not offer their pledges. These notably included the Prophet's clan, the Bani Hashim, who felt sidelined at having not been consulted in these affairs. Abu Bakr asked Umar to stop, and with time those who believed that the caliphate was better suited to Ali bin Abi Talib relented when Ali himself offered his belated pledge. Simple, right? Now listen to one of the more extreme Shi'i renditions. While Ali was busy washing his cousin's body and preparing the Prophet for burial, Abu Bakr and Umar rushed to the Ansar, insisting that they pledge allegiance to one of them. Having secured their approval, they proclaimed the matter settled and asked everyone to offer their pledges to Abu Bakr. When some dissented, 
Saying that they could not imagine anyone but Ali bin Abi Talib filling the role, Umar went straight to Ali's house, where Ali's wife, the Prophet's daughter Fatima, opened the door. He threatened to burn the house down on her if Ali didn't come pledge loyalty straight away, and punched her so hard he broke her rib and caused her to miscarry the Prophet's grandson, an injury that would prove fatal when she passed away a few weeks later. Ali was a capable warrior with many devoted followers, but ultimately did not press his case for the caliphate as he did not want to divide the young ummah. Instead, he opted to accept Abu Bakr's leadership but withdrew from politics in an act of dignified, community-minded objection. And now for an extreme Sunni rendition. Ali was sleeping while Abu Bakr and Umar were hard at work ensuring the ummah stayed united after the Prophet's death. He was woken up by his wife Fatima, who happily told him that the community had selected Abu Bakr to lead it now that the Prophet had passed away. He was ecstatic and so eager to pledge his loyalty that he arrived before the new caliph only half-dressed. The nakedly partisan historian goes on to blame all Shia talk of dissent on Ali's part on, get this, a Yemeni Jew who was trying to bring Islam down, hatefully sowing the seeds of discord by making up claims that the companions of the Prophet were not in perfect harmony. I want to discourage listeners from thinking there are such things as unified Sunni or Shi'i narratives. The vast majority of Sunni and Shi'i histories disagree with the extreme versions I have just presented to you. I went for an intentionally stark contrast to convey their differences as clearly as possible. The Shi'a were the Muslims who thought that only Ali had the right to lead the community after the Prophet's death. They justified this belief by pointing to both his close blood relationship to the Prophet and the Prophet's own words in his farewell speech, but what really made Ali the most fit to lead in their eyes were his perfect Islamic virtues. We will get plenty of examples of his uncompromising commitment to justice and his refusal to bend any rules as we go along, but I just wanted to be clear at this point that it was Ali's unique character that inspired so much devotion, especially from the more disadvantaged Muslims. His strict adherence to these ideals was considered threatening to many with tribal interests, who usually stood firmly opposed to him. Sunni histories are quite sympathetic to Ali's legitimacy as well, at least by the time things are getting written down, and they mainly seek to downplay any disagreement among the companions of the Prophet. This both minimizes the schism and empties Shia beliefs of their political potency. If the main takeaway from history was that their protagonist Ali agreed with all the caliphs before him, then the Shia should just follow suit and agree with the majority of the community as well. Whatever the particulars of the first election, there does seem to have been some friction between Ali and Abu Bakr, as Ali took no prominent role in society during the reign of the first caliph. All the Beni Hashim clan seems to have kept its distance from Abu Bakr, and the Prophet's daughter Fatima was buried in secret without the caliph's attendance, a symbolically potent act. Ali is said to not have offered his pledge until after her death, between two and six months after the ascension of Abu Bakr. The election of Abu Bakr is the obvious suspect for souring their relationship, but some historians put the blame on Aisha. She was the daughter of Abu Bakr who was married to the Prophet. She and Ali apparently did not get along too well, and Sunni and Shia sources therefore have very different takes on her. 
while the conflict between her and Ali does erupt later, already at this early stage we have some sources insisting that the two had an acrimonious relationship. The reasons given for this are varied. Some claim Aisha had a grudge against Ali's wife, the Prophet's daughter Fatima. Others retell a piece of ancient desert gossip, saying Ali once commented on rumors about Aisha's infidelity with a there's lots of fish in the sea sort of evasive endorsement of them, something Aisha supposedly never forgave. As wife of the Prophet and daughter of the first caliph, Aisha would become the most influential woman of her generation, being called Mother of the Faithful by the many believers and supplicants coming to her with questions about their Prophet. So it shouldn't surprise us that much of the orally transmitted history about the Prophet is linked in chains of narration back to her. I mean that in the primary sources, you'll find many narrations that go A told B that C told him that she'd heard Aisha say that the Prophet once said this or did that. Sunni sources hold narrations attributed to Aisha in great esteem, while Shia sources tend to prefer ones attributed to her contemporary Abdullah ibn Abbas, a Hashemite cousin of Adi and the Prophet. Up until the election of the first caliph, all it meant to be Shia was that you preferred that the leadership of the community remain within the immediate family of the Prophet, specifically in the hands of Ali, his cousin and son-in-law. Since Ali didn't press his claim, there was no reason for any of his supporters to challenge the status quo. While it's true that you could at this point round up a bunch of people and call them the supporters of Ali, that's not justification enough to consider this event the first tear of the Sunni-Shia split. For example, the Ansar originally wanted one of their own, then stopped pressing their claim, and there's nobody insisting they be considered a separate sect. Without an actual split, I don't think we can hold this event responsible for what's going to happen to the community. In fact, if I've given you the impression that anyone who wasn't strictly for Ali at this point was not a Shi'i and therefore might be a Sunni, then I apologize for not having made it clearer that this is not the case. Although Sunnis would happily take it as a compliment, the features that define the sect today won't develop for another few hundred years. Just like how the early Christians can be called neither Catholic nor Protestant, the early Muslims were neither Sunnah nor Shia. There's one final story I wanted to relay about Abu Bakr's election before we close the discussion. Remember Abu Sufyan, the relentless Qurayshi enemy of the Prophet? Remember that his clan, the Umayyads, were actually a brother clan to the Hashemites? In fact, the two clans considered themselves ancient rivals for primacy among the Quraysh. The Prophet's grandfather was custodian to the Kaaba, and when Muhammad began preaching Islam, his clan was ostracized and Abu Sufyan quickly became leader of the Quraysh. When Mecca was conquered by the Prophet, most of its people converted to Islam, and Abu Sufyan had done the same. Hearing that Abu Bakr, who was of the Taim clan of Quraysh, had been elected caliph, Abu Sufyan rushed to Ali and asked him to quickly accept his pledge so that the tame clan may not steal the leadership out of their hands. The Hashemites and Umayyads may have been rivals, but they descended from the same man, and at least on that level, they were a single clan. He called Ali his fellow son of Abd al-Naf, the common ancestor, and pleaded with him to not let another clan of the tribe take what's theirs. Ali rejected Abu Sufyan outright, telling him he did not want any support that came from love of power and tribal prestige, as those motivations could only rupture the community. 
While this story is widely reported among the Arab sources, apocryphal or not, it gives us a great example of the conflict between tribal and Islamic values and Ali's refusal to compromise for political expediency. We'll have plenty of other examples of these two themes going forward. Since we've covered all I wanted to about our subject today, and think this episode can still go on a bit longer, I'll get into some more detail about what I meant earlier when I said that today's sectarian landscape has little to do with the world of the past. In the early 16th century, Iran went through a mega-revolutionary period, changing socially, politically, and religiously. The Safavids, an originally Sufi order, which is to say a kind of Gnostic strain of Islam, grew in power until one of its leaders claimed to be an end-of-time savior sent to write the course of history. He converted the order and the entire country to Shiism, and many Shia scholars were invited to the new Safavid empire to spread their beliefs. This process culminated in a new interpretation of a previously existing sect, Twelver Shiism, which was now held with the fervent zeal of a national religion. In its infancy, this sect was radically different from the Shiaism that had come before it, as it did not shy away from reimagining its past, including the history we discuss today. The account of Omar killing the Prophet's grandchild by punching his pregnant daughter is traced to sources from around then. Safavid Iran's creed helped distinguish it from the hostile Sunni empires that neighbored it, the Ottomans, the Mughals, and the less-discussed Uzbeks. Over time, their beliefs evolved as they interacted with other sects and their ideas, guided by a sophisticated hierarchy of legal and religious scholars. This was a rough sketch of the main event that skewed today's sectarian picture from its historical roots. Iranians make up over half of Islam's Shia, and Twelver Shiaism, on which they have had a permanent decisive impression, accounts for over 85% of them. Apart from the already noted differences in historical opinions, Twelver Shiaism remains the only sect in Islam to have a defined religious hierarchy, underlining its original functions of serving an established state. Shiaism has an analog of the Catholic Church, whereas the rest of Islam is more like Judaism in its absence of a religious establishment. Clearly, the conversion of Safavid Iran had a huge impact on Shiaism generally. Its influence was so profound that it is more accurate to say that Iran redefined Shiaism than adopted it, and so today the Sunnah Shia schism is sometimes used to mean the Arab-Persian schism. As this is way removed from the original historical context for these terms, I hope you can understand why I want to distinguish between what these terms meant then and now. Just a reminder before wrapping up, none of this is relevant to our story, and you're better off forgetting about it if you're only interested in the history of Islam. This episode actually grew out of the one I was making for Abu Bakr. I felt I needed to give the schism its own space, so that I don't have to cut short the time and attention we are going to dedicate to our first caliph. As the original holder of the office, his every move sort of defined it for his successors, and we'll be looking at his reign in some detail to discuss the more consequential of his choices. Join me next time for our first episode with a caliph to learn more about Abu Bakr here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.